Well, good morning. It is always a blessing to be with you. For the past several weeks now, as a church, we have been gathering together at this time of our worship service uh, to open our hearts and listen to God's words to us in the Ten Commandments. And we have found that these, these Ten Commandments are declarative statements that help describe to us the best possible kind of life, and that that God, our Heavenly Father, simply loves us too much. He doesn't want to just create us. He wants to guide us. He wants to help us grasp, to understand the kind of life that's possible when we trust Him more than we trust ourselves. Now, that's not always an easy thing. It's not always something that we do, and yet it is something as God's people that we are always trying to do. To listen to God, to trust God, to let God be our true guide and leader through our lives. And this morning, as, as we gather again uh, at this place, at these words, I, I want to remind you that in, in a, a sense, we're, we're trying to see these, these words, these commandments, as the raw ingredients, the, the basic foundation that God wants us to use to create a safe and nurturing place to live. Uh, we've used the, the idea, the image, the metaphor of God's good neighborhood. That, that God wants us to be able, through these words, to create a place to live where we don't have to ask about the crime rate because there isn't one. A place where people always keep their word. They always tell the truth. A place where elderly parents are always cared for by their, their children. They're never abandoned. A place where marriages never fail because of a lack of loyalty of covenant faithfulness, a place where, where everybody has enough and nobody has too much, a place where everybody's able to find some peace and quiet and rest when they need it. This is the kind of place, the kind of community, the kind of neighborhood that God hopes and dreams for us. And so as we, as we listen to God, I don't think we should have some heavy sense that these are basic requirements to get God to keep loving us. These are words that are given to us because God already loves us unconditionally and without limit. Well, we have just this past week, we kind of turned the corner on this list of Ten Commandments. We're on Commandment 6 this morning. And what we're going to find is that God is speaking to us now in very short phrases, very direct commandments. And they're going to be primarily phrased in negative ways. And I think it's a little easy for us then to think that God is mostly interested in telling us what we shouldn't be doing. But I think what we really need to understand is that God is trying to narrowly define what we shouldn't do so that we will have imaginations for all the positive things that we can do. Now, having said that, I, I think we need to be clear about the fact that these thou shalt nots that we're about to read uh, together in a moment, they, they're not lines, moral lines, character lines that you and I are invited to try to get as close as we possibly can to without then crossing over. Now, they're, they're lines that, that God is wanting us to understand we should be finding ways to run as far away from as we possibly can. That they are in, they're in, 
they're entirely the, the wrong kind of life than the one that God has in mind for us, the one that God hopes and dreams for us. They are warning signs. Stay away. Head a different direction. Don't, don't even think about doing these things. Don't, don't even think about getting close to these things. Because if you do, they have the power to utterly destroy the life that we share together. So let's open our Bibles to Exodus 20. We're going to read verses 13 through 17. So he says, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now we're going to leave these up here for just a few moments. I want you to look at this list of what God doesn't want for us. This list of things, behaviors, actions that have the power to completely destroy our ability to live at peace with one another. And the reason that, that God wants us to understand how not to live, the reason God wants us to understand just how dangerous these things are to community life is there are few things more meaningful. There are few things that are better than getting a chance to actually live in loving community. Without division, without, without anybody taking advantage of anybody else, without anybody misleading anybody else, without anybody striving against somebody else, but true and authentic community where everybody belongs and everybody has a place and everybody has a role and a purpose. We have to protect that kind of community life. We've got to do everything we can to stay connected to one another in a world where there are all kinds of seemingly legitimate reasons for us to break that connection with one another. Now, I, I think God wants that for each one of us. And I think we, we kind of hear people talk about true, authentic community, and we tend to shrink that community down to a manageable size of people that we actually think we want to get along with. But I don't think God only wants this kind of loving community experience for our closest family and friends. I think God wants us to practice in our relationships and our families and with our friends and how to actually live this way in a, in, a, in a selfless way for the sake of others. But I think he expects, he anticipates, he hopes that more and more the boundaries of our community grow. They get bigger. That there's more and more people who we invite into that place in our hearts and in our lives. The most basic component of community is the absolute value of each person in the community. In, in the best families and then by extension societies, every single person matters. Every soul is sacred. Every voice is heard. No one is ignored. No one's persecuted. No one's neglected. And without this working assumption that we can agree on about the universal sanctity of every life, we have no foundation for trusting one another. There's no foundation. Especially if we're just getting to know one another. The, the worst case scenario is that we could eventually find ourselves 
hurting the lives, even, even taking the lives of other people because we think we're, we're convinced that they are somehow stopping us from getting the life that we desperately want. And once a society reaches that extreme point, it cannot survive for long. God in his loving and infinite wisdom knows this. And so he plants a boundary marker, a warning sign, a stop sign that tells us, hey, if you're looking to fail, here's how you do it. You make the private decision that some lives matter more than other lives. You make the decision that your life matters more than anybody else's life. And once you do that, you're going to come up with all kinds of reasons why it's okay for somebody else to be ignored, to be abused, to be looked over. You're going to come up with all kinds of reasons why you should always have the best of what's available, even if somebody else has to go without. Once we start to decide that different lives have different value and worth, we have set ourselves on a road for destruction. Not just for some of us, but for all of us. God wants us to understand that that's what's at stake. I mean, if we want our families, our our friendship groups, if we want our churches, if we want our communities to actually work, and when I say work, I mean those communities are a place where people are taken care of, where they are, are loved and, and nourished and nurtured. If we want our communities to work, we absolutely have to treat the lives of other people as the most valuable gift that God has ever given us. That we have been entrusted. Not only with God's grace, but with this ability to take care of life. To nurture life, to bless it, to cherish it, to to protect everybody that's around us, no no matter the cost, no matter the the challenge, no matter what. Now, I think it's pretty safe to assume that every one of us in this room, we, we know that it's never a good thing, that it's never a positive thing for for someone's life to be destroyed. I mean, it may at times strike us as a sadly necessary thing in extreme circumstances, but I would hope that everybody can agree that in those extreme cases, it's always a tragedy when somebody's killed or somebody feels like they have to kill. kill, Or or we just have to realize in that moment just just how dangerous at times we are to one another. I I think we can all agree that that's not the way we want things to be, that, that it's not the way God wants things to be. And so we read the, the sixth commandment, we, we promise to ourselves and to God that we're, we're going to avoid physically killing someone else as much as we possibly can, and then we move on. Which, if this is all we had to go on, this single verse in Exodus 20, I suppose that that would technically meet the, the basic requirements of you shall not murder. But we don't only have these words to go on, to understand God's intent when he says you shall not murder. Centuries later, his son, Jesus, decides to unpack this more because people have figured out how to avoid murder, but how to still harm life. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll read together, starting in verse 21. 
You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which the best translation of that word is, you're worthless. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, you're worthless, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to that person, then come and worship, then come and offer your gift. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you, Jesus does this over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and what I have noticed as we have been living with the Ten Commandments is just how much, how often Jesus is directly connecting his reflections and his remarks to these original Ten Commandments. He is a new Moses giving a new kind of law, a law that's not just about basic requirements, but it's about the heart of God and the kind of hearts that God wants for each one of us. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you. And I think we listen to Jesus' words. And, and if we're going to be perfectly honest here, they, they make us uncomfortable. Because he has found a way to help this sixth commandment actually be something we have to wrestle with every single day. We don't get to avoid physical murder and then check it off the list and go to the next thing. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I I want you to wait just a second here because you've heard it said that you shouldn't kill anybody in cold blood. And because you haven't done that, because you're technically not a murderer, you think you've mastered God's instruction here. But God wasn't just asking you to simply refrain from physically destroying someone else's life. God was telling you to not even damage somebody else's life. He was telling you to, to, to take care of them, to see the worth in them, the value in them, and help them to experience it. I mean, sure, God's happy that, that you aren't murdering one another, but, but God is heartbroken with the ease. Just, just how easy it is for you to do things that damage, that hurt other people. And their sense of how much their life is a gift to you. Jesus keeps going. Right? He, he doesn't just say, no, 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 you got to dig deeper. It's, it's about how you think about it. It's about how you speak to one another. He says, I, I want you to be honest with yourself that you, you have treated other people in ways where you, you crush each other's hearts. You damage one another's souls. You, you end up kidnapping and murdering other people's spirits. You, you label entire groups of people as worthless. You, you label entire groups of people as foolish. You, you blame them. And them alone for all of the bad things that happen to them. All of the suffering they go to, through. And, and you, you don't even wrestle with the ways in which you might have contributed to their suffering. You beat up your family and friends and and even your acquaintances with hateful thoughts about them. And by saying, 
biting remarks to them. And, and I'm tired, Jesus says. I'm, I'm tired of you trying to put a good face towards me and your heavenly father while you turn your back on people that you should love. While you turn your back on people that I love. Stop coming to worship, dragging inside of your hearts, not just the things you want from me and, and all the things you hope I'll fix in your life. Quit coming with evil intent in your heart towards other people. The way you get ready for church, Jesus says, is not by putting on your Sunday best. It's by being reconciled to people who've caused you to go through moments that you're still struggling with. And with that, Jesus, for this morning, is done speaking this truth to us. And it's, if we're honest, it's not just a truth that's sometimes hard for us to see. I think it's a truth that hurts to see. I'm sure you're going to be happy to hear this since I'm your preacher, but I have never murdered anybody. I, I have never reached out in anger to physically destroy another person. But in my anger, in my frustration, I have absolutely crushed another person's heart. In my anger, in my frustration, I have, have damaged other people's souls. I have kidnapped and murdered people's spirits. My weapons have never been made out of metal. My weapons have always been made out of words, but I have wielded those weapons nonetheless. The bottom line is I have failed to faithfully honor the sacredness, the, the preciousness of the life of every person I encounter. Instead of nurturing them and taking care of them to help and to heal them, I have at times hurt and wounded them. But I have witnessed other times when people who are better than I am have found a way, even then, to make the choice to bless, to cherish, to protect, to honor the lives of others, even and even others who have caused them immeasurable sorrow and pain. Because you're a decent person, and decent people don't ever try to intentionally damage somebody else. We don't set out to hurt somebody else unless they've already hurt us first. And then all bets are off. I mean, it's relatively easy to be good to another person when they're good to you. But Jesus isn't asking us to be careful in those kinds of moments. He assumes that we'll be good to people who are good to us. No, Jesus is asking us to be full of care when we feel like we're dying inside because of something that someone else has done to us. And the question is, in that kind of moment, when we're wounded and broken and hurting... Then what do we do? Then what do we say? I guess a different way to ask the question, the way that God wants us to ask the question is, even then, how do we find a way to love? It's not enough not to murder. We have to find a way. In a moment when we feel like we're dying inside, we have to find a way, even then, especially then, to love. To cherish, to protect, to honor the sacredness of somebody else's life. I was a, a senior in high school 
and uh, church was, was just getting out. It was a much smaller congregation than this, about 300 members, uh, and we only had one exit out of our parking lot. And so we're all kind of filtering out into the parking lot, visiting, trying to figure out where we're going to go for lunch. And somebody's trying to pull out of the parking lot. And as soon as they start to pull out, a motorcyclist runs into them from the left. It's a really difficult road. There was some rises and some dips. And, and I saw a flash of light moving too fast towards the car out of the corner of my eye. And by the time I turned around, the accident had already happened. The people in the car were, were banged up, but they were okay. The motorcyclist died immediately on impact. Right there on the road in front of our church. And everybody now is, is stuck in the parking lot because it's the one exit from the parking lot. And so we immediately start to pray. We pray for uh, the girl who was driving the car. Her name's Amy. She was my same age, a, a senior in high school. And, and even though she was, was banged up, um, she was you know, waiting for the police, the ambulances, and, and she's sitting there on the curb, and I sit down next to her, and she's just looking at the road, and she can't stop looking at the road. And she says to me, how did this happen, Jared? How did this happen? Why, why didn't I see him? Why, why, why didn't I see him? And so we prayed together, and, and everyone else that was, was there was praying for her and, and the other people in the car and praying for the family of this motorcyclist, and none of us knew anything about him. The next day, I happened to be at the church office when my dad received a phone call. And I watched him kind of talk to this person, and I could tell at the beginning he doesn't know who it is, and as he keeps talking on the phone, he's getting more and more amazed at the way this phone call is going, and he gets off of the phone, and he turns to me, and he says, I just talked to the adult son of the guy that died in front of our church yesterday. His name is Brian. His dad's name was Joe. They don't have any church connection. They don't know any minister. So he asked if we could have the funeral here and if I would do the service. So me and my dad immediately started working the phones. Right, calling everybody at church that we could think of to say, we're going to have a funeral here in three nights. You need to come. We need to support Joe's family. We need to support his son, Brian. We need to be there for them in the moment of this shocking and sudden loss. And, you know, nobody quite knew how to, how to respond, exactly what to say or what to do, but they all decided that the best response was to show up and show up they did. So three nights later, I'm, I'm there with my dad. We're standing near the doors. We're just kind of waiting on people. And we watch as two groups of people who have almost nothing in common start to flow into our church building. Um, and, and I mean, our, our church people are there wearing suits and ties and, and fancy dresses and then all of Joe's friends who, who were, were grizzled and older bikers, right? Men and women coming into our church building and making jokes like, you know, I hope it doesn't get struck by lightning. And I hope, you know, all, just 
obviously uncomfortable being there. And yet every one of them going past us and going over to Brian, Joe's son, and just hugging him and and trying to comfort him and trying to help him. And as the the building got more and more full, I started to worry about the fact that these groups were going to figure out that they really didn't belong together. Because it was obvious they didn't belong together. I mean, I'll never forget. There was this prim and proper founding member of our church, Ethel Stackhouse. She was sitting on the edge of the third pew, and next to her was a guy in a leather jacket with leather pants, and he kept pulling out a flask. He couldn't quit crying. And she's wearing a pearl necklace and white gloves. And I keep waiting for Ethel to set this guy straight. And she just reaches up and rubs his shoulder and tells him how sorry she is and asks him, how did you know Joe? Tell me about him. I get up to to say the opening prayer and I look out at that room full of people and I realize in that moment just how, how amazing and wonderful and beautiful what could have been a, a social mess that, that, that God had entered into that moment because two radically different groups of people had decided that they, they had one thing in common in that moment. And you know what that was? They came together to honor the life that Joe had lost. And in coming together to honor the life, the gift that someone was to to all the people who knew and loved him well and yet to this church who didn't know him but decided that they wanted to love his family well and all of that we found out that in trying together to honor the life of someone else we figured out how to how to honor one another's lives beyond anything that we had ever done before i mean you you know how it must have felt in that sanctuary with all of these these church people who were nervously glancing sideways. You know, being made anxious in all kinds of ways they didn't fully understand by the, these bikers. And, and then these bikers trying their best to, to not feel like anybody at church was judging them or thinking negatively about them. I mean, here they were. They're going to sit through an hour and a half of, of, you know, fellowship and eating together. And then this funeral meal, all, I mean, funeral time and, and all of that having to to stand with and sit next to these uptight goody two-shoes that they just didn't get. Both sides somehow compromising to be in that place together because everybody's saying, you know what? Life is sacred. Every life is sacred. Joe's life is sacred. And we want to not just say that, we want to act it out, this belief that this is what it looks like to honor life. Well, we get to the end of the, the funeral and... Brian, Joe's son, decides he wants to get up and say a few words. Uh, and, and he just starts to talk about his dad and tells a few stories about growing up. And, and some of them were funny and made people laugh and, and other stories made people cry. But I will never forget the way he ended his remarks. He paused for just a moment after the stories and he looked up and he said, I feel like I've got, to, I've got to say something. And the person I want to say it to isn't here. And I don't blame her for not being here. And somebody told me that her name is Amy, and she was the one driving the car. 
My dad's a great guy, but he loved to go fast. And he was always too reckless on his bike. And I don't, I don't even know all the details yet of what happened. But I need somebody in this room. And he wasn't looking at his friends at that point. He was looking at all the church people. He said, I, I need somebody in this room to find Amy and tell her that I hope she can forgive herself because I already have. Will somebody tell her? And then... This is my favorite part of the experience, the memory. He says, my dad had a favorite song and I want to play it now. So Brian sat down and I listened as the Rolling Stones started to flow throughout our ancient church speakers. <laughs> and, when, and when Mick Jagger started to sing, it wasn't just that I couldn't help but smile, but I couldn't help but believe him. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. And none of us in that moment, none of us was going to get the, the one thing we wanted. We wanted Joe back safe and sound. We wanted Amy to not have to carry in her heart the doubts and the fears that come with car accidents like that. We weren't going to get exactly what we wanted. But we found that in coming together to honor the sacredness of life, we found the sacredness in each other. We, we found one another and how much we loved one another. And brothers and sisters, it isn't what we wanted, it's what we needed. It's what we needed. Life is a gift. Life should be cherished. It should be honored. And when we make the foolish decision that some life matters more than other life, that, that some people matter more than other people, when we decide that we're going to cherish and honor those we already like to be around and understand and when we come to that place, what we are doing is we are saying to God, we know better than you how things should be. And we're wrong. We're wrong. We have to find a way to love one another as much as we love ourselves. And we have to find a way to help other people in our lives know that truth because of how well we treat them. When God says to us, you shall not murder, what he wants us to start to think, what he wants us to start to, to imagine are the countless ways that instead of destroying life, we can bless it. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, a few of our shepherds and their wives will be just outside of these double doors. They're going to be there to pray with you, to talk with you. Uh, they can share information with you about our church family, our community. They can talk with you about what it means to become a Christian. Uh, if you came this morning with a prayer request, with a concern, anything at all, 
uh, that a Christian couple could help you with, please go to them as together we stand and sing.